0: Got a great show coming up for you on the Detroit Today podcast. We're talking about affordable housing in Detroit and how hard it has become, particularly for families that live in poverty, to keep a roof over their head. We're going to talk to a number of innovators about what they're doing to make sure that everybody has a decent place to live. Matthew Naimi and Oren Goldenberg are co-creators of a unique affordable housing space in the city. And Brett Crandall is director of design for 3 Three Squared Inc., an architecture firm that focuses on technology to build mixed-use spaces. Matthew Naimi and Oren Goldenberg, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Yes, it's great to have you both Good here. So, uh, Matt, I'm
1: going to start with you. Dream DreamTroit, tell me what it is and how it will work. So, Life is a dream. DreamTroit is a complex created out of the original Lincoln Motor Company. Um, we took it back to the footprint of the 1922 transfer of Lincoln from Henry Leland to Henry Ford. And it was the longtime home of Recycle Here, the city of Detroit's recycling drop off, and the birthplace and home of the Lincoln Street Art Park. Inside the original space was a bunch of musicians and creatives and other companies that kind of just limped along with the structure as it was um, needing a lot of repair. In 2017, Orrin Goldenberg and I teamed up to figure out a solution to really save the recycling center and the art park and the culture we were creating. Um, what led us to down the road to being able to do that was creating an affordable housing model. Um, traditional housing wouldn't really like a lot of the culture that we were creating. You know, it's loud and it's um, 24 hours a day <laughs> and uh, we had to kind of settle in on something. So, Dream Troy is now an um, affordable housing complex for, uh, with 76 affordable units, um, income tiered, verified, um, along with uh, a pizza place, Michigan and Trumbull, which will be opening up a little later in the month, a Yellow Light Metro Grocery. Um, The Recycling Center never missed a beat, never missed a day, and a fabrication shop, the art park, um, and a couple of venue spaces, and art storage. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so Matt, you and I have known each other a long time, and uh, I've seen you in this space over a really long time. I've also seen, of course, like I was saying in the open, the city change over that time and that area change over time. Go back. To when you bought this space, this old Lincoln plant, and talk about what was happening over there and what that meant for
1: your use of the space. What was possible? What wasn't? Well, I mean, the unique part of Northwest Goldberg, that area, um, well, the building's been in my family since 1980, and I took over primary responsibility and, and guidance um, for that property in 1997. Um, At the time, the city of Detroit was in a different place, Um, a lot more action on the bad side um, and great disinvestment throughout all of Detroit. But in particular, that neighborhood has received incredible disinvestment, Um, you know, be it from the city, um, people leaving their homes, um, expansion plans never realized by certain stakeholders uh, and the vacancy allowed their creativity that we were we were afforded to do. Mm-hmm. For a long time the only street lights or lights in the entire area were coming off our building because of vacancy. Um, and with that we were, you know, we could do a lot of unique fun things, but we also used art to highlight that part of the neighborhood. We put up sculptures and art and murals in order to draw attention to the fact that there's still life in that corner of the Northwest Goldberg. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. And then, and then slowly, I mean, did we bottom out? I don't know what, where the bottom is or the top, right? We're just moving along. And, uh, you know, we got to a certain point, Detroit got to a certain point where things turned a corner or started to bubble in a different way. Um, and there's been investment in that neighborhood, um, obviously. A lot. A lot. Um, but, you know, we've had a big announcement from our big stakeholder in the neighborhood, Henry Ford, but that announcement was three months ago. So, what we were doing to do what we were doing wasn't because we knew that was happening. Mm-hmm. We were trying to really address a need for our community, our culture, and our neighborhood. So, Dream Troyte, in essence, um, was done without what we're seeing today. The plans and seeds for this project were planted in 2017. Yeah. And it took a long time to get here. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk just a little about
0: the the pressure that comes when you have a property in a disinvested part of the city and then that part of the city starts to change. Other people come around and start to spend money and start to to make things possible that weren't before. There are a lot of people in your position who would have seen that as an opportunity to cash in, right? You, you've owned that place for a long time, put a lot into it. Now you could you could make it into fancy condos, for instance, and sell them off and, and be done with it. I, I want to talk about the intentionality, though, of saying, hey, we're part of a community that has a need and this space can help fill that need, uh, the, the process of getting to that decision rather than saying, well, it's my time to, to cash out.
1: Well, I mean, I just want to, you know, again, harken back <laughs> to 2017 when we made these decisions. Yeah. That wasn't the case. You couldn't, you couldn't move as, as easily is, yeah, in that space. That isn't, yeah. yeah. It, it, that, like what you're talking about right now, that wasn't the case in 2017 when we started down here. What you're seeing as the catalyst now for the development in our neighborhood is DreamTroy. Mm-hmm. Everything else is still a rendering and ten, five to ten years away. Yeah, We're actionable. We're moving people in right now. So it's kind of, you know, the chicken and the egg thing. <laughs> it's sure. like, how do we get to the point where it's valuable? Well, we actually have to make the neighborhood more viable, and we did that. But rather than make the thing more viable, the neighborhood more viable in order to cash in, DreamTroit was created where it is and how it is to anchor culture and creativity in a community that will receive investment and will not allow it to be displaced. So there's a double-edged sword of development and creativity. And what we wanted to do with DreamTroit was to protect creativity in the core of a community. Typically, when creativity activates a, an area and drives development, it's forced out, kind of like a pebble hitting a pond. Hmm. What we look at Dream troid is as the core of a flower, and then that investment that happens around it will not displace the core of culture and creativity and affordable housing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Oren Goldberg, Goldenberg, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You're a co-creator uh, at Dream Detroit. You're also a filmmaker. I should make note of that. So you uh, connect with the creative side of this uh, as well. But, but talk about how this works and how this will work in the affordable housing space, how, how this uh, makes it so that, um, you know, people who otherwise may struggle to keep a roof over their head can do it uh, a, a little easier.
2: Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Um, you know, I think the the true affordability of this project is its work live ability. Uh, because we're in an industrial zone, you could live or work in these spaces, and predominantly do both. If that's if that's your lifestyle, uh, affordable housing in Detroit is restricted by certain AMI um, percentages that mm-hmm. are county wide. Um, so what we've seen and when we were exploring this development was that what is considered affordable is not necessarily affordable for the folks in our community. So while we are offering uh, rental rates from 25% AMI all the way up to 110, even in your income verified state, that that might not be truly affordable for you, as you mentioned at the top of the show. People are expected to pay 30% of their income for their rental units. And that doesn't always necessarily allow people to stack away money and move to the next level of their life. So what we're really excited about is uh, being able to provide spaces where people can live and work. Um, We've also been able to create some very truly affordable spaces that might not have all the amenities, one is looking for but at least it's a safe dry and fun place to live we have communal units about 10 of them on the property where you just get a rather large room 250 square feet a sink and then you share kitchens and bathrooms hmm. uh and the sharing of the bathrooms are not like open bathrooms are private they're lockable there's changing rooms in them um, and there's multiple kitchens on site But it's taking this model that I believe many people have lived in in Detroit of a shared home where you might have a bedroom and then shared kitchen and bathroom with uh, your friends or housemates. And then uh, to make it sweeter for us, we are able to offer daily janitorial. So you don't have the very common problem of who's cleaning what and who didn't clean. Sure.
0: So so I want to talk about the income uh, requirements and the affordable end of this a little more. Uh, what happens if somebody starts to live here and then begins to earn more than the threshold for affordable housing How, how do you balance uh, you know the 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 concern about um you know, keeping people in their homes obviously but but also making sure that the resources available to the people who need it the most, or is there some sort of yearly income check? Uh, what, what's the process look like there?
2: Yeah, that's exactly the case, Stephen. And there's yearly annual income verification, and it's important to note, Matt and I aren't setting these standards. These are um, federal guidelines sure. from our funding stores, which are capital magnet funds, and yeah, that's exact. You know, folks will get income verified every year and if they make more money, they may have to pay more for their unit or they can move to a different unit. Um, And at a certain point, they will have made too much money to live on this property. Um, But when that's the case, we hope that they'll have made enough money, which is over 120% AMI, which right now is in the $80,000 mark Um, And would be able to go and afford to live somewhere else in new market rate units. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: I'm talking with Matt Naimi and Oren Goldenberg. They are co-creators of Dream Detroit, which is an affordable housing development in the Northwest Goldberg neighborhood, just south of Grand Boulevard, near the Lodge Freeway. Uh, it is a space that is leaning into the idea that uh, we need more affordable housing, for instance, for artists uh, and creators in our community. We are talking uh, more generally about affordability and housing in the city, today and talking about some innovative solutions, things that people are coming up with that might not instantly come to mind when we think about the gaps between uh, affordability and just keeping a roof over your head here in the city of Detroit. We'd love to hear from you, the listeners as well, while we talk about this. Give us a call. Tell us what you think uh, about the state of affordable housing in the city uh, more generally? Uh, do you have experience living in affordable housing in Detroit? Uh, do you believe that places like Detroit could be uh, a real positive step in helping to solve the housing insecurity that we see uh, in many, many parts of the city for many, many families? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and we can try to work you into the conversation that way. Matt, I want to talk a little about the community that you're you're building there. Now it's a loud community, as you have <laughs> pointed out. Uh, how how does that work with with neighbors, for instance? <laughs> uh, how does this fit into that that Northwest Goldberg uh, community?
1: Well, well, obviously we've been there a long time, mm-hmm. and we've been making a lot of noise <laughs> for, for a couple decades, uh, a decade and a half right now. Um, typically right now we don't really have neighbors Mm -hmm. and our neighbors are all industrial parcels. So you have that going for you, which is nice. Now the Dreamtroy residents are made aware before they move in that this is a loud community, 24 hour noise zone because we truly believe there are 80 people that can rent or want to rent that don't work a nine to five schedule Mm -hmm. and understand what could be happening um, 24 hours a day. You can have a DJ next to you. You could have somebody working on uh, welding and grinding and things like that. We want to encourage that. We want to encourage collaboration. Um, and then we do um, events and uh, performances outside. Uh, again, there's no physical neighbors that are not industrial buildings or vacancy at this point, vacant fields. Um, and we have relationships with you know, the, the municipality and doing what we're doing um, and and with our neighbors. So that's kind of, kind of the gist of it. It's made aware and you know what you're getting into again, this housing is a solution for a certain slice of Detroit. There's just like when we were all trying to help Detroit, there's no single magic silver bullet that we could do to make Detroit a different place. There's a lot of solutions, yeah. and this is just one of them for a typical slice of the creative class. And when you take housing for artists, this is also housing for nurses and people that do not work a traditional nine-to-five. It's a 24-hour economy that we're trying to service, so places to eat at 3 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. or 6 o'clock in the morning, and maybe not bar food or just trying to soak it up, or, but something to start your day. So that's kind of, uh, we're we're, we're looking at that as an individual lifestyle and an individual mindset that is different. Yeah. Uh, And Stephen. Yeah, go ahead. Can
2: I also also add that because of of our industrial building, it's very well built, and then we also added a lot of sound dampening. So uh, we had a full moon party there last week, and that was the best thing I heard all night that was one of the new residents who was probably about three units from the party couldn't really hear what was going
0: on (laughs) wow wow uh itty bitty big mama on twitter says stop corporations from buying up residential property to then remodel on the cheap and charge twice what it's worth tax the rich accordingly and we wouldn't have this problem she says it blows my mind the way the media reaches when the solution is simple that's someone who thinks there are simpler answers to affordable housing i'm not sure how you would stop corporations from buying up residential property and fixing them up and charging uh, market for them. But uh, I'm in favor of it if we can if we can figure a way to at least slow that trend in uh, some neighborhoods. Let's go to the phones, though, and talk with Eric in Detroit. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah, go ahead, Eric.
3: Oh, sure. I've had the pleasure of actually touring Dream Troy and it's pretty impressive. But I would say uh, one of the problems that we have here in Detroit is an reliance, like everywhere else, on low-income housing tax credits that actually act as an incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very expensive. They're very complicated. Mm-hmm. The housing um, that it creates is inevitably rental as opposed to single home. And one of the things that you get is it expires, and perversely, it's more likely to expire when— the landlord actually makes improvements or when the neighborhood improves, which means when the neighborhood improves, they let the affordability expire. You end up displacing
2: people.
3: Hmm. Uh, Detroit's going to be spending, you know, two hundred million dollars just to preserve the affordable housing that we have that now we that have. was built with light tech.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Eric, that's a great point. Uh, I'm glad you called and and made it. Uh, Orrin, I, I suspect you might be the right person to answer those concerns about and, and, and how you'll manage those at DreamTripe
2: yeah so i appreciate that uh we do not have light to the dismay of many folks this is not a Lytech deal and we've really pushed against actually getting light tech can you, can you just here.
0: quickly explain for our listeners what Lytech is
2: huh, it's somewhat <laughs> uh because we didn't get it it's not really my my wheelhouse yeah. but it's um it's, it's
0: low-income low housing tax credit is
2: what yeah called, and yeah. there's a you have to apply for them, not everybody gets them. There's two different kinds, 4% and 9%. But in a sense, it's um, you're you're asking for a reduction in uh, cost to, to build low-income housing. Mm-hmm. Um, we went a different way and got historic tax credits and new market tax credits and uh, a fund called the Capital Magnet Fund dollars, which are different. Those came with a 10-year deed restriction. We are currently trying to work out a deal with the city to to have a 30-year deed restriction. So that is one way to actually circumvent uh, the refinance and how you would actually, you know, what Eric was talking about. How mm-hmm. when you fix up a property and you refinance it, and it's no longer low income. Is there's ways to restrict a deed and the actual property itself?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, great explanation there, and. Uh, uh, congratulations to Matt and uh, you Warren as well uh, for for coming up with this and and pursuing it. It's a really interesting and different way to to kind of address the the housing unaffordability that uh, I think we're all struggling with. And thanks uh, for being here on Detroit today as well. Thanks
1: for having us, Yeah. Thank you, Stephen.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at some other ways that people are trying to approach housing insecurity in the city, make it a little better. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. There are a lot of ways to create different kinds of affordable shelter. There are tiny homes, housing cooperatives, and shipping containers, but... Often, affordable or attainable housing like this is made in poor condition. It's made in a way that people would not want to live in. So how do we create nice attainable housing? How do we blend in affordable housing with the rest of the community instead of setting it off in places where it's not near uh, the kinds of amenities that we have? in other parts of the city? And how can we create housing that's both cheap and that people will actually wanna live in? That's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today and help us answer these questions and more. I'm joined by Breck Crandall. He is the director of design for Three Squared Inc, an architecture firm that focuses on using technology to build mixed use spaces. Breck, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So what do you think we're getting wrong from a design perspective when it comes to affordable housing when you think about the affordable housing that we have in the city of detroit that we are working on there are lots of different projects uh, taking place across the city that purport to expand affordable housing what are we not thinking about when
4: we're doing that yeah it's a great question to lead off conversation so what we always focused on is what's the cost What's the cost to build? And the cost to build is is always, it's projected unfairly because we're always thinking of cost per square foot. But really a cost per square foot's a terrible way of thinking about buildings because there are areas of a building that cost significantly more than other areas. Like kitchens and bathrooms are gonna cost four or five times what like a bedroom would cost because you're only building a couple of walls and pulling some wires into that. And so to just think about like what's the cost, uh, you're really projecting yourself at the, like, the wrong way to start the conversation. Because as soon as a builder's done building, all of that cost is just like handed to the buyer. So when a buyer gets the keys to the house, if a builder rushed the job and built it you know, with poor insulation or they used cheap doors and windows in order to make this, Those costs are transferred down to the buyer, not just in like the maintenance of these things, because things are going to start falling off, paint's going to start chipping, but you're also going to have higher heating and cooling costs for the lifetime of that building. And then when that window fails, you're going to have to replace that window. So we're really thinking about cost and just like an upfront, like what's it take to build this thing and put it in the ground? And that's why I see a lot of these projects in and around the city that that are going up so quickly. And you could see the inadequacies of the construction that's going into it. Yeah.
0: So what are some of the housing projects that you uh, maybe are working on or have worked on and that you think get more of this right? Uh, consider more than just
4: cost when they're designed. Absolutely. So... If you've heard of Three Squared Ink, you probably think shipping containers uh, because that's what we're known for. That's what we've done a lot of projects out. But uh, I would say that the Internet has probably poisoned the brain of a lot of people who come to us thinking that shipping containers are going to be the cheapest possible solution. Right. Well, there's a lot of cost considerations into that. And Mm -hmm. I think there is an argument for uh, cargo architecture, as we've come to call it, on a scale of economy. I mean, if you're manufacturing lots and lots of units in a, you know, a similar or identical fashion, then there's there's a real argument to be had that that, that could, you know, increase the buildability and the quality of construction uh, because they are wind and water type boxes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of benefits to, you know, having these envelopes that are, you know, steel and can be, you know, located into place. But... The majority of those projects that we're working on honestly end up being custom residential projects uh, because you don't want the cookie cutter thing. And the most efficient way of using containers is not the cool you know, factor that has these uh, large cantilevers and jutting conditions and everything <laughs> like that. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of the projects that we end up working on are custom. And in that aspect, you could have some time savings, but it's not the cost savings that affordable housing solutions are looking for. Right. So we've been working on a totally new product that is using generative design. Um, we're using algorithms that are helping us to build models that we could produce housing at a more efficient rate by looking at the sustainability factor of the house, the window and door placements of a unique house based on its context, based on the houses that are around it and the tree coverage, the positioning on the lot. And what we're doing is we're combining all of those expensive portions of a house into a core and a core can be manufactured at scale. And you take this core that has your kitchen, bathrooms, your staircase, and all of your mechanical units all into this one core, and you replicate that over multiple homes. And this core can be placed in a number of envelope systems that can make the benefits of you know, sustainability and of manufactured housing. So we, we're looking at you know steel building envelopes, we're exploring SIP panels, so that's the structural insulated panels. So the envelope of the house can be built in a unique way, and we can have unique looking houses that are all built using the same technologies, but each one is unique to its placement on the lot, given the context, because what we want to avoid is oftentimes when you get into affordable housing, that scale of economy mm-hmm. overrides the whole conversation. And so it's just cookie cutters. We've all seen those neighborhoods where it's just rows and rows of identical homes. Sure. And, you know, the housing that we that we as designers and architects put into the world has a huge impact on the urban fabric. And that's the last thing that we want to do to Detroit or the surrounding area is just have these cookie cutter homes, soldiers in a row. We, we really want to ensure that each one of these homes is designed for its unique context. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We're talking about affordable housing and innovative approaches to affordable housing in the city of Detroit. would love to hear from some folks who have experience living in affordable housing here. Uh, what was your experience like Did you think about the design of the place that you were living and the impact that that had on the life you had in that place? Uh, Also, give us a call. Let us know what you think our biggest challenges are to creating more affordable homes uh, in a city that is changing really, really rapidly right now. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So so about the time uh, Matt was starting up Recycle Here, we were uh, coming online with 45 low-income housing tax credits, and I, uh, I asked Matt to do some recycling over here because we still didn't have curbside, and uh, he actually started a satellite site right at Jefferson and Chalmers. And uh I I can't say that the uh, houses turned out as well as the recycling program he has. Mm. Uh and uh you know it's really it's been a it's been a three decade uh journey for me. Uh we started off with 25 habitat homes and those are actually in better shape than the uh 45 low income housing tax credits we did. Mm. And uh you know we advocated for all kinds of things with this project but it's not an easy project to work with. Um, we finally did get air conditioning units on them, but we, we tried for the Energy Star ratings for all the appliances. And actually, the the following year, the, the uh, low-income housing tax credits put the Energy Star in there. Now these houses cost $180,000 to build back in 2002, mm-hmm. and they were they were going into a neighborhood that had $5,000, you know, uh, values on the houses around it. So it was an interesting dynamic, but we were going after. So the project is aimed at um, single mothers with children, and this is as a way to build up equity and get. Um, um,
0: yeah, so so John, why don't you feel like it worked? I mean, that's I think that's always hmm. the question. What what did we not? think of up front or what was not done in the execution to make that work? I mean, on the face of it, it makes a lot of sense. Build these kind of homes, get people into them and help them, help them build some equity to be able to become uh, homeowners. What, what went wrong?
3: was not accepted nor supported by the so-called community leadership, uh, which I am one of them. I was on the uh, citizens district council for, for 18 years. And, uh, the, the council, as an advisory board to planning and development, um, supported gated communities. Shorepoint, hmm. Greyhaven, mm-hmm. Clearpoint Woods, Victoria Park.
0: Yeah, all they, over on the east side, yeah.
3: They did not support affordable housing. And in fact, about hmm. three years ago, even though the citizens' district councils were, were dissolved back in 2014... They still call themselves the leadership, and they told the city they didn't want small container homes over here. Wow. Um, again, saying they represent the the community, and mm. I have to say that you know the habitats worked out better than the low income housing mm. tax credit. It's interesting um, because That's... those you know cost sixty thousand dollars, and the, and the people paid that off, and they own those now, and mm. they have. Some wealth,
0: right, right. No, that John, I I love that you called and provided that example to us, and of course the contrast there between an affordable housing uh, development and something like Habitat, which has a different model. Uh, uh, You know, all of these things are at work in the city, and they should be, but of course they all have slightly different outcomes. Uh, Breck, before we have to break, I want to get you to react to what John's saying and how design again, can play a role in the success or failure of these things.
4: Yeah, fascinating. So Habitat for Humanity, which I've collaborated with through the university in the past, uh, they have perfected the model of how to build things the tried and true way, the cheapest mm-hmm. way. And mm-hmm. they know exactly where volunteer labor needs to kick in, where it doesn't affect like the actual outcome of the product. Uh, They know exactly what to buy and where to buy it and how to buy it in bulk. And so it doesn't surprise me that those houses have have kind of outlasted. Uh, I'd love to, when we get back from the break, get into a little bit about just like the labor accessibility um, around these projects. Because I have a feeling that that had a large impact on those low-income houses. Yeah,
0: we actually are going to break and go to another segment. So if you want to talk about that, now is the time.
4: (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it's just, I mean, in my my generation, they told everybody to go to college. Right. So we mm-hmm. all went out and got a degree. Nobody mm-hmm. went to trade school. It was actually kind of downplayed, like, don't don't get into the trades. And now we're in a situation where this is really impacting our profession because we can't find laborers. You can't find skilled labor. labors. Yeah. Everyone has a college degree, but nobody knows how to wire an electrical panel or to, you know, Plumb into a sewer, and so the people who are left that do know those skills are booked out for years. I mean, that's the hardest part of any one of these projects. I I am building my own home. Uh, it, it would be my prototype of the home H O U M. That's phonetic spelling, mm-hmm. um, and that's in collaboration with Three Squared, and we're going to be building that in North Corktown. The hardest part of that project is finding the laborers in order to, to do, do it. actually do it. People yeah. to actually put concrete into the ground. Uh, the plumbers, the electricians, and they're booked out, and you can't argue with their price because they're the only ones available to do it. So whatever they say, so this price fixing of general contractors and all of those subcontractors is just continuing on the rise, let alone if building materials don't ever come back down in price, which we're not projecting that they will anytime soon. I think this is here to stay. And so the cost of housing, I mean, get an appraisal on the house. The appraisal doesn't even match the construction cost. Right. That's the hardest part of this conversation. Is how can you make affordable housing if you can't even pay for the labor in order to do it? How do we make housing without government subsidies? Is a little beyond me at this point. Yeah. And that's no, a it's bigger a, conversation. It,
0: it is, and it's but it is one of the bigger barriers I think we have to solving this problem of how we get people into decent housing that is uh, that is afford- affordable, especially if they live in, in poverty. Um, Brett Randall, it was really great to have you here. Thanks for having talk me. talk about this. Thanks so much for joining me. That's it for the Detroit Today podcast. You like this show. You get a lot out of it. You ought to be sharing it. Share it with your friends and your neighbors, your relative, anyone you think would enjoy it and would add to this community that we're building here. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethin. And our student producer is Mira Kumar. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. We'll see you next time on the Detroit Today podcast.